Welcome to Streaming Thoughts, where we stream our thoughts on movies, TV, and all things nerdy. I am Daniel. And I am Nathan. And welcome to our podcast. So Nathan, what's on the movie list today? Oh god, there's so much going on. This might give a little bit of an insight to our audience as to the timing we take from when we record these to when they become available. Because some of them might have seen some awesome new logo graphics pop up on our Facebook and Twitter channels already. That's right. We'll get a new logo courtesy of one known as Pistachi. Yes. There's a huge shout out, huge thank you for the artwork. It is amazing. It is fantastic. I love it. I'm very excited for it. She did a wonderful job. Definitely captured my gorgeous long flowing locks and your utter lack of them. Yes. The yin to my yang. (laughs) (laughs) Another shout out I wanted to get is most of our advertising, most of our promotion has been in the United States. And we just had our first listen show up from outside the United States. And I'm not positive, but this might be from another podcaster off the shelf, Minnesota, that gave us a call out in a recent episode. Yes. Off the shelf, Minnesota. Thank you for the call out. And if we have any of your listeners listening today. Yes. Welcome aboard. Welcome. And thanks for the follow. So in light of everyone being sheltered in place, different celebrities and Hollywood elites are doing their own little special showings and viewings and uh, Taika Waititi did a little preview with audiences over Thor Love and Thunder. That must have been cool to be there. I only caught it after the fact but one of the things that came out of it that I thought was the most interesting and the most um, speculative uh, worthy is Beta Ray Bill. He's promising Beta Ray Bill will make a more prominent appearance in Thor Love and Thunder. That's going to be super interesting. Have we heard on who's going to be portraying Beta Ray Bill yet? No, but I'm actually thinking about it. Everyone's speculating over Christian Bale being in the movie and who he's going to portray. And a lot of people want to say that he's going to be the villain, but I think he'd make a good Beta Ray Bill. I think he would make a good Beta Ray Bill. That's actually not a bad plan. And you know what, though? Marvel is notorious for pulling out switcheroos and doing all that kind of stuff. It would certainly be a little bit different than the expectations people were expecting when they first heard that he was in it. And the other thing, the backstory in the comics, Beta Ray Bill, after proving himself worthy of Mjolnir, was rewarded by Odin with copy of Mjolnir that also gave him the powers of Thor. You think that's going to be how Natalie Portman will get the powers of Thor is from Beta Ray Bill instead of getting it from Thor's fallen Mjolnir since that's obviously been broken in the MCU. Yeah, there's so many ways that Thor could give Jane's powers. Yeah, you know, I I think that the dwarves might also be involved. I think that they might also make an appearance and I think that they may also have a way or a means to give those powers to Jane Foster. Everyone talked about the dwarves of Nidavanir over how Thanos killed them all off. And it's like, well, doesn't he only kill 50%? It's like, well, no, he killed them all off of the forge, but that wasn't all of the dwarves of the universe. Right. That's That was my understanding of it, is that those dwarves are the only dwarves that work there. But there's obviously, you know, probably a whole planet of dwarves. I was like a space station workstation. There's others. And... And the Asgards are probably going to need to get their power back up somehow. So the dwarves are probably going to be key to that, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I th- you're going to have to bring them back in order for 
all of these new weapons to have been reforged, right? Because you can't have Mjolnir being reforged unless you're reforging it by the same people who forged it in the first place. Curious thoughts? More to come on that. We have yet to see on it. Other news? We previously talked about the rentals of video on demand for movies that are out. And my kids watching on Roku and such have seen Trolls World Tour available. And they have absolutely been begging me to pull that movie up for them. However, the rental for that is $20. And that's not... I mean, we originally speculated that would be a full-on digital purchase. But no, it's only a 48-hour rental for $20. What's your thought on that? Wow, 48-hour rental for $20. And this is a theatrical movie, right? So this is essentially a theatrical release. Yeah, I mean, right now, the main theaters that it's available in is drive-ins that have managed to stay open because of the ability to maintain social distancing within the confines of your own car. But, and that's going to be interesting how they track whether or not this movie is a success or if we're going to get any solid numbers on how much this video on demand is working for them. Because I looked it up. I mean, the box office ticket so far this weekend is, is under $2 million. Oh, wow. That's not a whole lot. <laughs> and I think the budget, wasn't the budget for this film $90 million or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Like $90 million. And, I mean, it's considered a $700 million franchise is what they were initially projecting before any of this has even started you know to go back to your first question whether or not twenty dollars is a fair Mm -hmm. price i'd say it is i mean when you think about it when you think about the cost of of a movie ticket for if you're taking you and your kids that's all you're already spending way more a lot of money movie tickets and that's just on tickets themselves let alone any concessions that you might get yeah, it would actually be a money saving for me, honestly, because if I take my kids to see Trolls World Tour in a theater, I would have been expecting to drop close to $30 on just the tickets. Right. So that's like a $10 savings, really. And n- not to mention the fact that you're buying the ticket to see the movie one time, whereas with this version, you actually get to see the movie for 48 hours, which means that you could technically see the movie again the next day if you really want it. For again, all for $20. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a bad idea. But at the same time, because culturally we are so used to renting, like normal on-demand rentals that come out are usually like $6. Like some of these other movies that have recently been released, on-demand rentals early are like all $5.99 for me. And that's kind of what our culture expects for an at-home rental is about $6. So I wonder if it's going to backfire because, yeah, it is a money saving for any two parent, two kid family, at least, if not even two parents, one kid is probably still a a lot of markets. That's probably still a money savers. But because it's so drastically more than what our culture has said, this is what we rent movies for. I already know there's a lot of people that I've been hearing saying, oh, yeah, well, I rented it and then I let everyone in my extended family watch it off of my rental right and so people are already finding loopholes in the system so i mean yeah and in a just on the people that i know i figure you know what would have probably have been uh, a box office turnaround of about five or six families they're getting a box office turnaround of three families yeah and even less than that because as we said that's cheaper than most families would pay for tickets yeah 
So maybe two and a half families, really. This is not a bad idea to get some revenue in, for sure. But honestly, when you look at it, it makes sense as to why studios are not doing the whole, hey, let's release this movie now on a digital platform so that we can get some money because they're looking at it and thinking, no, you know what? Let's just wait. Let's just wait until the box office can go back to a more normal, you know, normal environment. I think based on the early callouts that I have seen on this, that this is really just an experiment of, is this a way that will work? If this have if this works really well, you'd probably see more theaters doing it, even when we're not in a pandemic. But based on the early responses, I'm going to predict it now. A lot of the, uh, movie production companies are going to see this as a failed experiment at maintaining box office or that retail dominance of a new release movie. Yeah, I'd say so. I think they're going to be a little bit more reserved, and it wouldn't be surprising if they increase the pricing of the movies as a result also yeah you know like 24.99 or something like that instead of 19.99 it is what it is i mean i'm sure there's a lot of i'm sure there's a lot of families out there that are really excited and really grateful to being given this option to be able to watch and enjoy the show with their kids and their families and the comfort and safety you know to maintain health absolutely so on that part kudos to the production company to making sure that they are still serving their audience yeah absolutely and that's great it's great to see you know and i and and this is why why i want more of this you know obviously i know that it's not an ideal circumstance or it's not an ideal situation but it doesn't mean that i don't want to see these movies at at my home if i you know if i if i can't so speaking about uh, movies that are available for rent for only 5.99 instead of 20 dollars, did you get a chance to see 1917 yes we that is a topic of discussion for this episode and i have a lot of thoughts on this movie and i can't wait to hear your thoughts nathan on this on this movie because i did very little research on this film prior to watching it i saw the trailer and that's about the only thing i knew about and i didn't really know much about the movie other than it won some oscars you know and, and and all that stuff so it was highly praised movie but it was in my radar for something to watch but i went in there almost blind so again i i I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I want I want to know what your what your thoughts on it are as well. I love how I always try to to lead up to topics being like, "Oh yeah, this we're totally just morphing into this topic." You're just like, "Oh yeah, that was totally our plan the whole time to talk about this today." <laughs> it reminds me, have you seen those videos of those two guys? One of them is doing like the magic trick and the other one is showing how it's done. And then the other one gets really mad at the other for showing the audience like how it's done. And, and that's basically what's happening here. Like that <laughs> yeah, happens. Kudos to people who do the magic trick YouTube videos because I set up a quick magic trick YouTube video for my daughter. It is not easy to get good angles or good recordings of magic tricks when they're being demonstrated so all, all, all the people out there who do those magic tricks on youtube to show them how it's done and teach other people the how to do them kudos to you you guys do a great job i see you've been uh taking a cue from the scott lang home arrested book <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so 1917 for those of you who don't know what this movie is all about it is essentially a movie uh, directed by Sam Mendes about two soldiers who are trying to deliver 
a message to a battalion that's about to walk into a trap. It's a very simple concept. It's a very simple premise. I like the minimalism on that. I really appreciated it for sure. This movie, the way it plays with the cinematography, is like I'm not a big follower of Oscars and Academy Awards, but I knew that it was up for something. And I started watching this film, and like 10 minutes in, I'm like, award that they had to have been up on must be cinematography. Yeah. Because this is such a unique and powerful storytelling means of how they are following these two guys as they are going through the trenches of World War One, receiving their orders, getting ready to cross no man's land, and just seemingly as one continuous shot. Like they just said, oh yeah, here, take these two guys. Here's our stage, and we're going to film this whole thing in two hours and get it done. <laughs> they did it so seamlessly with the few cuts that they used. It honestly feels like they managed to film this like in two hours straight through, no errors. You know what? I'm glad you brought up the whole long, continuous shot. I would do want to say, this is not the first time it's been done in cinema, by the way. So Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock, was the first one to do it, I think. Oh, yeah, The movie did. called The Rope in 1948. I haven't seen that since I took film theory classes in college. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's been a long time. But yeah, he, they did that in The Rope. So again, this is not the first time it's been done. But I was 10 minutes into the movie and I thought, wait a minute. Why hasn't there been a cut yet? I haven't noticed a cut. I was like, okay, you know what? I'll wait. There's going to be a cut soon. I'll see, I'll see what happens. And then, again, 10 of the 10 minutes went by. And I was like, wait a minute, I still haven't seen a cut. And again, I was so shocked, you know, that I hadn't seen a cut and it's been 20 minutes. Again, I was surprised because I hadn't done any research on this movie. So I didn't know that this was filmed as, as one long continuous shot. It wasn't, by the way. There was some, some trickery that was done in there to make it seem like it was one long continuous shot. But I was just blown away by how they were able to accomplish this if you study the film theory and like how movies are produced and shot you can probably see where the shots are and there were a few points in the film that after seeing one continuous shot for so long my brain automatically started going aha i spotted it i spotted it it works really well in this scene you can also at the same time see how difficult and risky of a decision it is to make the film in that means. Absolutely. I mean, the challenges that you have to face, because immediately after I was done with watching the movie, my first thought was, my God, how did they do this? Mm -hmm. How did you do this? Because they had to film what was essentially several continuous uh, long shots. Yeah. And they range anywhere, from, I think, from three to six minutes, which was just insane. And to make sure that you don't make any mistakes... For that long, it's just crazy. This will definitely be a movie that I will be curious to see outtakes and deleted scenes. Because that's really going to give you an insight into the filmmaking process and how difficult it was to achieve. One of the coolest things that they did, by the way, and how they were able to accomplish some of this stuff is they actually had to measure characters begin speaking and then they reach a certain point, right? And they sort of stop and continue to have a dialogue or just stop for whatever, for you know whatever it is that they're going to do. They had to rehearse that, measure that distance, and then build a set around that distance. Oh, yeah. And what other medium of entertainment does that, Nathan? Do you know? Okay, what are you thinking of? A hint. Before, before film, you just had the regular... Oh, yeah. 
Because with a theater, you I mean, you have a very limited amount of space that you can set it up, and you have to figure out how to maximize your stage room. Yeah, regular theater shows. Theaters use that same technique to build a set around dialogue and scenes and how far a character can walk, where, where a character sits, where a character stands. All of that is so much more planned on a theatrical production. Well, as with film, I think a lot of producers are, and directors are probably used to the fact that if they need to move, transition to a new spot, they really can. And I know like some other critics will sometimes call this out where people will be in one location and start a conversation and then the director cuts it to a different location that's potentially hours away and they're still having the same conversation like a seamless transition right yeah that doesn't make any sense really but that's something we're used to in film yeah and in this one they were they had to kind of time their scenes to fit that transition they did and that was incredible i mean they had to dig anywhere around 5200 feet of trenches so that when you start rolling at point a and you end up on point b it needs to be exact. Absolutely. So the sets become so incredibly crucial to the filmmaking of this. So if you get a chance, go check out those behind the scenes and how they how they film that kind of stuff. It is so cool to see that process. They kind of fudge a little bit on the use of space and time because they're definitely traveling a much greater distance than what's probably reasonable to say that they traveled in a two-hour movie <laughs> yeah so you would almost expect because it's so seamless like it feels like one continuous shot that that interruption of space and time would be very apparent but it really wasn't at least it wasn't to me that was my one criticism of this movie my suspension of this belief for the distance covered was not there with this movie because it was one long continuous shot the illusion of how much distance was being covered I was thinking they talked about all the things they needed to cross. And then when they got to each one of those points that they reached in order for them to get to their final destination, I thought, wait, you already got there? It was that close to where you started? Again, I think that that is the only bit that messed with my mind because of that long continuous shot. I think I was able to accept it a little bit more because while I'm not a huge military history fanatic, I have studied a a little bit about World War One and trench warfare uh, for completely non-history related reasons. In this case, it shows them crosses this, like huge nomads land that you know pockmarked with craters from aerial bombings. But a lot of times, those trenches actually were really close to each other. He makes a comment in this film where he says, "We have fought for every inch of our advancement, and you want us to believe that they just." up and moved away that was a very real thing back then it's like and it was brutal dangerous method of warfare where they would dig these trenches they would advance just a little bit until they made a surge they would try and cover that short distance get into the enemy trenches and hopefully eliminate enough of the enemy soldiers that those trenches then become their their own trenches mm. and yeah when they feel like they were going to be overwhelmed and they retreated and gave up ground like that yeah they left booby traps behind to make it dangerous for people to reoccupy their trenches i think that because of movies portrayal of war and how we typically see films taking place from world war ii onwards we have a very particular sense of what wars are supposed to look like on film and we forget how much different 
World War I was in terms of the weapons that was being used, the strategies that were being employed, all of that kind of stuff was done so differently from any wars that happened before because World War I was kind of a war where we were starting to figure out how to like use all of these automatic weapons and tanks and tools of modern warfare. It was our first war where aerial dogfights and planes were a significant advantage and influence on the outcome of battles. Yeah, and so I, I forget that World War One was one of those wars that was a lot more close-quartered compared to other wars. So in that sense, I guess that's why it, I was able to ha- suspend my disbelief for some of the distances traveled is because I do remember studying about those close quarters and how how narrow of a strip no man's land literally was at times. Wow, okay. So that that makes it better then. I can I can go back and rewatch this movie now and and feel better about that. Now, another thing that uh Oh, poor Blake. You know what? I was not expecting that. Because I was like, what, about halfway through the film? Yeah, it was about, no, not even, I don't think. I, I don't think I was necessarily surprised about the idea of one of them not making it to complete the mission because that fits the grittiness of the genre that they were going for. But I was surprised that it happened when it did happen, especially because they've already they already had a couple close calls before that point. And I'm surprised it happened to who it happened. Yeah. Up until that point, Blake really felt like the the one that was going to make it, the one that was going to be there to the end. Yeah. I didn't doubt that Blake was going to survive. Yeah. I believed it. I mean, right from the beginning, he was so like gung-ho about, let's let's do this. Let's save my brother. It built up that whole thing from the very beginning. I thought that he was going to keep going, find his brother, hug each other, and have that conversation. I thought that was going to happen. That's another thing. When Schofield finds out that Blake's brother was in that first wave that ran over there, I was expecting it to be one of those double tragedies where both brothers died in the war. Yeah. I thought it was going to be that too. But it kind of pays off. And this is one of the reasons why I think the one long continuous shot really works for this film. Because when Blake died, it was like, it was a little bit shocking, but the mission must continue. He continued on. He pushed forward. So I didn't really get any emotional impact because I'm still invested and involved. Let's push forward with this mission. Let's follow through. I didn't really feel Blake's death emotionally until Schofield was meeting with Blake's brother at the very end yeah and that's when it hit me and it hit me hard you're right you're you're absolutely right and this is what i think the writers intended and by the way i just want a quick shout out to christy wilson cairns she co-wrote this movie with sam mendes the director and when i looked her up she has done one other thing and that is a one episode for penny dreadful season three and besides that she's done a, a few short films here but her career is doesn't span this whole laundry list of movies and TV series that I expected. Seriously, good job. That was just some amazing writing. At the very end, they have a tagline thanking one of our past veterans for telling the stories. Do you know how that was related to the writers of this? Uh, so that was the grandfather of director and co-writer Sam Mendes. Yeah. And to go back to Blake's death, I wasn't expecting it to happen. And then you forget, again, just how how brutal, you know, wars can be. It was a powerful scene in that sense that it just kind of showed that. Yeah. And what made it particularly sad for me is the fact that not much long after, the soldiers show up. That's a little convenient. And, and I thought, oh, wow, like, man, just a few minutes before, and this would have been a, a whole different situation. Yeah, it's... 
on one hand, it's like, yeah, it's, it shows the power of, you know, human emotion. You see somebody trapped, still alive in a burning plane, and your fir- their first instinct wasn't, this is a German who cares. Their first instinct was, there's a human that's trapped in a burning plane, we should rescue him. They did a really good job with that whole ethical dilemma, right? Do you kill this person? And if you don't kill him, well, then now he kills this person, you ended up having to kill this person anyway, but then, you know... So then, like, sh- we should have killed him to begin with. Right. Or just leave him. But... Right. But then if you think that, then that that doesn't make you that much better of, of, a, of a human. It's, uh... Right. It makes you the bad guy. <laughs> exactly. So it's, you know, catching it too, right? So, yeah, that, that whole Blake death was just a bit, was a bit surprising, a bit shocking, and a bit powerful. So I want to go back to why I brought up the, the caption at the end. Oh, the grandfather. That really kind of hit me as to... How meaningful making this film must have been for them because not my grandfather, but actually my wife's grandfather was a veteran. And back when he was still with us, he used to tell these stories of uh, specifically it was post-World War II. He was stationed in Asia and they had so much power to them, so much meaning and importance for him to be sharing this with the next generation just the thank you out there and that acknowledgement to not just one veteran that comes across as acknowledgement to all of our veterans yeah and i think they did a really good job with that with capturing that feeling of the movie i just want to say i don't particularly i'm a fan of war movies you know like i I think that they they you, you have to do them right you know you can't just make a spectacle of it because i think that's being a little disrespectful of the history so you have to walk this very fine line between making something beautiful and amazing to look at but while at the same time again not making a spectacle out of it and taking a a serious tone with it right i mean yeah uh, particularly if if you're going to tell a story like the one told in 1917 yeah i can agree with that but i feel like like this movie really did do a good job at reminding people of the first world war because i think that we don't often talk about that one yeah i mean wonder woman was the first world war uh while like captain america was the second world war and both of those at the time i felt were very believable depictions of a superhero in a historical world situation but this is a movie that really kind of captures there were no heroes. You didn't have the single person who ultimately was jumping out there and saving the day, leading the charging against impossible odds. It was an effort of everyone and every single person needing to pull their weight. And a line that really drove it home is when they're arguing over the significance or importance of earning a medal while on the battlefield. Yeah, that was a really interesting seeing and sort of seeing the two viewpoints from Schofield and Blake and just how they saw the war and how they saw being a soldier and duty and all that was just you know very different for one it was just the duty that they had to do and the other one it was a something that they should be going home with and saying and talking about how great it they were or how great it was I think Schofield view was a, a little bit more I want to say a little bit more on the realist pragmatic pragmatic <laughs> Yeah, I guess that kind of is why I expected um, Blake to be the one to survive to the end because they were doing this kind of very gritty, realistic. This is what the war was like. It's what they felt like they were trying to portray. I was expecting Blake because he had that optimism that 
I was like, oh yeah, you, you should bring that medal home. You should show it off. You should show how brave and honorable you were. Yeah. I expected his worldview to get destroyed over the course of this mission and for him to become more pragmatic like Schofield was. Yeah. I thought they were going to take that direction too. I thought that at the end they were going to do some kind of award ceremony or yeah. there was going to be a comment made about how he was going to be getting a medal and how Blake was just going to say something uh, along the lines of, I don't care. Yeah, so it's one thing that I wasn't sure about as far as the history of it is the idea of sending just two people across no man's land on such a critical, dangerous mission when so many lives of an entire battalion were at stake. Right. What is the tactical benefit to a decision like that? Yeah, it really seemed like they're putting too much faith or reliance on just these two people of getting this message across. And it really kind of plays out the way that even his reception, once he finally reaches the command tent, is like, you know, you're just one person. You know, we've been fighting for this to route them for months. If I pull back now, just because they're going to give us another order to send them at a later time when there's fog or under the cover of night, that just means we're going to lose more men than if we do it right now. Right. And that was a really interesting depiction, again, uh, just kind of showing how chaotic it was in the battlefield. And also, at the same time, how communication was done. When we see war being depicted, even in World War II, there was radio communication. There was all this other stuff that wasn't there. And so that basically told that, hey, you're not here. You're not seeing what I'm seeing. You're basically giving me orders from another part of of the war, and you don't have the intel that I have. So how can I trust that your decision is going to be the decision that's best for my men? Right, absolutely. I mean, and that was a real thing that they would get is, again, because they're fighting and scraping for every inch of land that they could achieve. There's always these things of like, oh, when's the best time to make these surges? When's the best time to try and overcome your enemy? Again, it's a fictional depiction, obviously, but they managed to carry across the feel of those military leaders trying to gather the intelligence, get the information to their officers in the field to know when they find out that something is potentially going to be a major trap and their own frustration of getting these kind of back and forth orders that didn't always pay off. This situation, it paid off. It saved a lot of lives, but it definitely made sure that, you know, a lot of times it didn't always pay off. They second-guessed themselves, they pulled people back when they should have advanced, and in the long run, the war was worse than what it otherwise may have been. And I think another movie that did a a really good job at portraying that was The Imitation Game. Did you ever see that one? No. It just did another really good job at portraying just the decisions that you have to make at war and how some of those decisions are just absolutely terrible decisions to make we're all human beings right the wrong order can be issued you attack at the wrong day at the wrong time yeah and i think that this movie did a good job because the the mission wasn't executed perfectly the first wave had already been sent so the attack wasn't stopped oh yeah because they were reliant on sending these messengers to to deliver a handwritten letter to give them the intel right and in our modern day of you know, worldwide communication with things seem so small to get a message like that to someone. A lot of people forget during World War One, telephone communication and even telegraphed communication, especially on the front lines, was very unreliable technology. Yeah. 
you need wires, lots of wires to span them across uh, vast distances so that you can connect one telegraph or one phone to another. Yeah, and even when they had those, then all of a sudden tower or a field becomes a hotspot for conflict a airplane bombing run comes through exactly wires that can be very easily destroyed when you learn that then you realize wow yeah that technology is completely unreliable it is far more reliable to send someone now speaking about sending someone something that was used quite heavily during world war one that i was a little bit surprised that they didn't make any mention of but at the same time maybe just didn't really fit the plot and the story they were telling they never mentioned using carrier pigeons to communicate faster between lines. That was a thing in World War One, right? Yeah. What? What wasn't it, Wilson? Yeah, Woodrow Wilson was there in World War One. I, I thought. Yeah. No, no, I want to say. I want to say it was under his command or guidance that that was implemented. Nice. Yeah. These were technically the British Army, so maybe they didn't have that idea. Maybe they did. I don't know. If you're a history buff, they can probably come up and find us on our Facebook or Twitter and. Tell us all the things that we're getting wrong. Yeah. And for the rest of our geek and nerd community out there, study up on some of this history because this is fascinating history over how the um, United States Army Pigeon Service was so critical during that time, too. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. That was a good point you made. I don't know. That was widespread amongst the other allies. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, this goes back a little bit to the cinematography because there was a lot of 360 shots. I don't know if you noticed how many 360 shots there were, but there was quite a few of them. Oh, yeah. I think that was one of the ways that they were allowing them to quickly transition between larger distances was using those 360 shots. Yes. And again, go watch those videos on the internet on how they did that because it is actually very cool. Because they had to build these 360 sets so that you can make those transitions easily and quickly yeah the set building by the way a quick side comment on that you know what it reminded me of lord of the rings just in terms of how much attention and detail they put into those it was just absolutely unbelievable but my main thing going back to the whole 360 thing and the reason why i brought it up is because one of the thoughts that i had was wait is this a first step to having complete and total virtual reality movie experience oh yeah that's something that i am kind of wondering about we were talking about the idea of setting up a theater like those 4d theaters that give you a little bit of rumble and they'll spray scents into the theater you know like you smell certain things in conjunction with what's going on on the screen that like the next phase of that is not necessarily a full virtual reality theater but a theater where like they have the main screen up showing you what it is and they also set all of the walls to be projecting scenes that's going on outside of your main view because that was and the reason i was speculating that this might be a thing that comes up is the advancement of home entertainment is keeping pace with theaters theaters did with avatar this new technology for doing 3d movies and very quickly you could buy a tv that could do the same thing and then theaters came out with their 4k projection screens and then very quickly you started seeing 4k tvs at walmart and best buy and then they're like oh well even if you buy a 4k tv you can't actually get 4k because it's just way too large of a file and these come into the theaters in these huge hard drives and then all of a sudden shortly after that they're like oh no here's this ultra 4k 
high definition blu-ray disc and don't forget audio too you know you had surround sound in theaters and then pretty soon we had surround sound audio on at home and then theaters decided to get like dolby atmos a 3d sound experience right and it was only exclusive to theaters and now uh 400 sandbars have dolby atmos technology yeah and on that point it's like home theaters was a bit behind the movie theaters but it's like really neck and neck as soon as someone comes with a new technology for a movie theater it's available to be in your home within a year it seems like nowadays and i think the next step is a full immersion 360 theater where your main viewpoint is going to be on the screen in front of you but there's going to be other like easter eggs or additional details that you might miss the first time around and this kind of experience is going to draw people in over and over again in keeping theaters more alive and more relevant because very few people would have the ability to dedicate an entire room of their house to a full 360 presentation. The only way you'd be able to really get this is virtual reality headsets, as you said. And it just wouldn't be the same as a full theater experience all around you. So I want to ask. Have you ever seen the behind the scenes for The Mandalorian? Not yet, no. So when you get a chance, check them out. They have a cool screen projection technology that allows them to create sets using screens. And it's so cool to watch. And when you see that, that's when I think you will say, this is exactly what I'm talking about for theaters. Yeah. The next step for theaters, they're going to need to draw people back in after the market comes back down. Part of it is going to be people just eager to get out of their houses, but being so used to seeing the movie for the first time in your own home with your 4K TV and your 4K Blu-ray disc, they're going to need to come up with something new to really draw people in. And they need to take a leap in something highly dynamic that it cannot be easily recreated in your home. And the fact that 1917 did such a great job with those 360 shots, right? The set design worked so well. When I look at 1917, I can absolutely see it the benefits of having this whole 360 degree being in that environment because the camera work puts you right in the middle of everything yeah and so to have that experience of just being dropped there and feel like you're there with a movie like this they could very easily do it now i can see how this may present challenges for other types of movies but for animation work and for movies like this totally works now on this whole topic of the movie experience I'm actually really regretting that I miss this in the theater because, as you know, my house can be a bit chaotic. <laughs> and when you have this in your own home, you're prone to distractions. You, you can always pause it. You can get up. You can walk away. You can take care of something. You can come back and you can pick up on it again. So watching this at home, it was definitely more prone to distraction. And being in a darkly lit theater... It's not going to stop paying for you. It's not going to wait for you. So it holds your attention the entire time a lot easier in a theater. I think would have really enhanced the viewing aspect of this for the first time seeing this. And God, I really wish I didn't pass this one over when it was in the theater because this would have been a good one for that. Absolutely. I also regret not seeing this in theaters. This movie had such great cinematography. It was just overall... A really good experience. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I have a decent 4K TV. I have a decent audio system. So my experience at home was probably better than what the average person is going to get. But still, I really wanted to watch this movie in theaters. 
and I'm just sad that I that I missed the chance to see it in theaters. Hope, hopefully, this comes back to theaters at some point. I really hope it does. There's always a few theaters out there that will replay older movies, usually for cheaper than the first time it was around. There might be that opportunity still. But for anyone who's listening, who, like me, did not see this in the theaters first, do yourself a favor. When you go to sit down and watch this movie, really try to do your best to recreate that theater experience in your own home. Just shut it down and just know, going to this movie, you want to sit down and you just want to sit there and stay with the scene. I say say with the scene because, again, that continuous shot just really pays off that it's just one scene it just keeps going it just keeps going there really isn't a time to stop and get up to use the bathroom you just just ride this one out that's exactly what i did and i can guarantee that you will not regret watching this movie in that fashion if you can stay there for two hours and not move watch it it's gonna be great and if you are an owner of fancy 4K TVs and or projectors or anything like that, this movie is so beautiful to look at. It's just absolutely amazing to watch. It, it just solidifies the whole notion on, wow, yeah, this movie was absolutely deserved that cinematography Oscar. The only other thing that I wanted to talk about was probably just the performance of these actors because these are not very well-known actors. Oh, yeah. Actually, that was a point that I was meant to bring up. The actors that they chose for this, I thought was interesting because almost every single one of them have that baby face quality. Yeah. No matter how old or grizzled the character look, they all had that kind of youthful appearance that made them look like some 18-year-old child that just ran off to war. And this one might look more grizzled, but that's just because he's been there longer, not because he's any more older or any more truly experienced yeah which to also kind of added to the whole effect of wow these are just kids yeah who are out here fighting and that was a big aspect of the world wars because it was so encompassing that everyone was going into the war effort and i guess we think of this more as a thing from world war ii but this kind of gives the feel that no world war one was i mean it was the great war the war to end all wars they couldn't imagine ever having a conflict that encompassing or that large ever again following it. So many kids just their lives being defined by the fact that they're shipped off to war. Yeah. When I look at the actors who played Schofield and Blake, I just thought, holy crap, this is just two kids were being asked to risk their life to deliver this message, which is absolutely crucial. It's crazy, right? Like how the older you get and when you see characters like this doing stuff like that, how you're like... You know, you start paying more attention to the age of the character as you get older. They also do kind of an interesting way to portray the difference between the kids who were being asked to do this dangerous mission versus the people that have just been there too long, seen too much. When they're being sent over the wall into no man's land and he's like, okay, when you make it to the other side, send up a flare so we know we don't need to. Go fetch your bodies. Right. And they're like, we don't have a flare. He's like, oh, okay, here, take this one. But I really hate losing them. So once you start getting shot, throw it back to us. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought that they did a really good job with those moments of humor scattered. There were very few of them, but I really appreciated them. I don't know who that actor is or even the character name at the moment, but 
As far as supporting cast go... It's Andrew Scott who plays Lieutenant Leslie. He was my favorite supporting character in this movie. Oh, yeah. Andrew Scott is always a fun actor to have in any movie. I always enjoyed his performances in everything I've seen. I've yet to be disappointed in it. By the way, his most prominent role or his most popular one is the role of Jim Moriarty in the BBC Sherlock series. Yeah, he's a fun one. He's not there. He's not in the movie for very long, but... Again, he makes impact for what he is there for. And you will remember his character. I appreciated his uh, levity. Yeah, it's very real. And again, just kind of gives you that feel again of what was it like to have been in those trenches and really captured it. I think they did a good job on it, too. Definitely worth all the awards and accolades that it was getting. All right. So should we do our TLDL? Too long, didn't listen? Well, we'll give our overall thoughts on the movie. Overall thoughts. This movie is worth the accolades that's been given. If you haven't seen it, don't think it's been overhyped. Definitely give yourself the time to sit down and enjoy the movie. Even if you're not a war history or war movie buff, it is an enjoyable movie for anybody, especially anyone who enjoys cinematography in general. Yes, if you liked Blade Runner 2049, if you liked Skyfall, this is the same cinematographer that worked in those films. And so you are you know you're going to get some very pretty uh, shots in this. So I concur. I, I think that this is a fantastic movie filled with a lot of emotion and, and, and tension. And the story, I love the minimalism around it. I thought that was really, really well done. Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson Cairns did a fantastic job with the writing like kudos to those guys and and so yeah definitely worth the watch so daniel this movie was inspired by the overall operation alberich which was a german withdrawal of positions given that as a final question to think about do you think the same sort of storytelling would work to do a world war ii film of d-day wow that is an excellent question of which we could theorize for another two hours but we're not so we'll leave you with that question for you to think about and if you want to hit us up with your answers on facebook you can find us at streaming thoughts podcast you can find us on twitter at streaming geek thanks everybody for listening appreciate everybody subscribe follow us this has been nathan and this has been daniel thank Thank you for for listening. listening